And so all good things must come to an end. This world indeed is fleeting. It's temporary. And when we come to here in Revelation chapter 20, we're coming to an end. And this section that we're going to read, Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 to 15, marks the end of creation as we know it. Let me go and just read a passage, and, and we'll, we'll kind of dig a little bit deeper into this. Revelation chapter 20, starting with verse 11, this is God's word. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Last time we covered earlier in chapter 20 the thousand year reign of Christ which we like to call the millennial kingdom right and and if you want to know where we're getting it from we see it, we see this mention of this thousand years Christ reigning and if Christ is the king and his kingdom has come he's reigning there is peace on earth Christ is ruling on earth this thousand years of peace later on after this thousand years it ends Satan gets released from prison, deceives the nations, and then the final judgment, fire coming down from heaven, casting Satan and his followers into the lake of fire. And we have the great white throne where he, where here God judges all things. And the reason why this, the thousand year kingdom must happen here before all this, before this great white throne judgment that we just read, is because there's this thousand year of rest. In the, land, in the land. Thousand years of rest on earth. This earth since creation has been fallen, broken, going through turmoil, sin, chaos, wars, storms, hurricanes, earthquakes, non-stop, death throughout generations. This thousand year reign is a time of rest in the land. Here Christ reigns and he fulfilled what we as humans are called to do we are called to be fruitful multiply and subdue the earth Christ made made thousands of disciples they follow him he multiplied and here they subdued the earth for a thousand years fulfilling the purpose of man and now all things come to an end this creation humanity has fulfilled its purpose and now it's time to put it to bed and this is what we see here and so the first thing we see is that heaven and earth faces their end. In verse 11, right? John here, the Apostle John, he sees this great white throne and God who is seated on it. From his presence it says, earth and sky, heaven and earth, fled away and no place was found for them. This here is them fleeing. Heaven and earth gone, destroyed, uncreated. And this is 
the doctrine of uncreation. I don't know if you guys ever heard of that. You guys know about doctrine of creation? There's actually a doctrine of uncreation. And this is God reversing the order of creation. God is reversing creation. He's uncreating this version of heaven and earth. And, and we actually, you know, we can argue actually throughout Revelation, this is what he's doing. He's undoing everything that's going on earth. You think about the plagues. You think about the different uh, trumpet judgments. It's like God is saying, God said in the beginning, let there be light. And suddenly he says there's darkness in the world. And God says, let there be vegetation. And now there's plagues that, and famines across the world. Right? Revelation, in a sense, is reversing what God did in creation. It's uncreating it. And this is not the first time God has done something like this. Think about the flood. Back in Genesis, early on Genesis chapter 6, the flood happened. And the flood is, in a sense, an uncreation. Uh, actually, you want to just, let me just show you how, this, how, how we can see this. In Genesis chapter 1, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 6 to 10, talks about here how God God created the lands and the sky he, they, they were called expanses Genesis chapter 1 verse 6 says God said let there be an expanse in the midst of the water so there's these waters right God there before land was formed there's waters all over the place and God said let it separate the waters from water so there's an expanse in between space in between the waters God made the expanse separate the waters <coughs> So that there's expanse that were from the waters that were above the expanse. Um, so there's waters on both sides, and it was so. Verse eight: God called the expanse, this space, heaven. This was the second day. Then in verse nine, he says, God said, "Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear." And so dry land, earth, appeared, and the waters that gather around the land was called seas. And we see here how waters were there first. What did the flood do? Well, the flood, in a sense, collapsed that expanse. It kind of, in a sense, it brought waters back together. I know it's been, God didn't fully uncreate everything because he preserved Noah and the ark and all the animals. He recreated dry land. But there was a sense of uncreating. Why? Because God was judging sin. This is the effects and curse of sin. This is God's response to sin. God uncreates what he does because of what sin has done. But God, by His grace, did not fully destroy the first creation during the flood. Instead, we see here throughout Bible for thousands and thousands of years, we have God's grace of trying to redeem creation, all the way until, all the way until now, and now going to the future with Revelation. God still trying to save souls before He fully uncreates everything, and that's what's going on here in Revelation. God is reversing His work of creation. Now, we, again, we just think about this some more. All right. So, throughout Revelation, as I kind of mentioned, you see bits and pieces of God just kind of undoing creation. It's, it's kind of interesting, right? Because um, after He does all this, right, with the trumpets, the plagues, the um, the seals, and then He has the millennial kingdom that happens, which is kind of weird, right? Like He's doing all these judgments, all these things, destroying the earth, right, killing off people, and then suddenly. Millennial kingdom happens. It's like reign of peace. And then the final judgment. What's, what exactly is going on here? Well, I don't know. So I, I, I don't know how, I don't know much about this, but just reading about it in agriculture, 
when you plan and you want to be fruitful and stuff like that, you 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 actually want to make sure before you you know you get a plot of land, what you need to do is you need to like clear out the old vegetation, like clear it out, make it clean, take it out. You pretty much have to kill off life in that in that patch of land, so that you can plant new seeds, till the soil, and then new life can come from it. In a way, this is what God is doing. In fact, God told Israel. Uh, if I was reading through Leviticus in my devotions. God told Israel that every seven years, let the land rest. Why? So that you can have six more years of bountifulness. No, in other words, stop planting stuff. Let it all die. Clear out the land. And then when you plant again, you'll have abundance of crops for nine or six years. God understood how his creation works. And in a way, God is... God went through the whole tribulation period in preparing the earth, preparing the land for Christ's 1,000 year reign of rest. And while God did all this, we want to keep in mind that the creation has not been completely destroyed. This world has not been completely destroyed. A thousand year reign is happening, peace on earth, yet earth it's still tainted. It's not perfect yet. Because sin has corrupted creation. And so, what's going on here is that the earth itself is still corrupted. In fact, there are many theologians still argue that during the millennial reign, there can still be death that happens. I don't want to get into how to get to that because that will take too long. But there's still that aspect of death that's still there. I mean, I think people will probably live for a long time during a thousand years, but, and I think those who were raised up in glorified bodies will probably didn't die, but just steps was still around. And so God here still needs to keep doing more work in terms of how he wants to save creation. Think about the language of salvation for our own lives. We're called, we say we baptize people, and we raise them up in new life. They have to be born again. I Meaning you have to be born again into a new life. When we think about 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says those who believe in Christ. They are what? A new creation. There's a sense here that. When there is salvation. It's not about us. Staying here in something we're just washed clean. God in a sense is putting to death. Our old self. And recreating us new. That's why we must have glorified bodies. That's why, in a sense, we must die in this body and be raised up again. But in, but in, that, same, in that same principle, the earth must go through that same process. Which is why, here, during the great white throne judgment, when the white throne appears, earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. They were gone, destroyed, uncreated. Scripture speaks about this throughout. Why must this happen? Well, throughout Scripture, when it talks about this current version, we'll call it, I don't know, Alpha, Beta, I don't know, 1.0, this current version of Earth and Heaven and Earth, when it passes away, what it does is it shows us the everlasting, unchanging, eternal character God, the only uncreated being, meaning no one created Him. He alone exists as He is for eternity. Let me give you a few verses. 
Psalm 102, verse 25 to 27. Of old, you, speaking of God, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away, but you are the same. Your years have no end. Isaiah 51, 6, Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Were the words of Jesus, Matthew 24, 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. See, when everything around us disappears, what remains is God. What remains standing is God. It's like if you're, you know, washing away a bunch of dirt. And what remains from that is the heaviest object, the sturdiest one, the most grounded one. God in His glory, He remains all of who He is. Heaven and earth passes away, vanish, destroys the great white throne of God here remains singular and God is seated upon it. What this shows us here is that God's justice and righteousness remains. His kingdom remains. His sovereignty continues. God's majesty continues to shine and He does not ever fade. And next here we see that the unbelievers will face their end. And this here sets up a courtroom scene. It's a courtroom scene of resurrected unbelievers. This is the second resurrection, right? We read last time about the first resurrection. This here speaks of the second resurrection. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death in Hades gave up the dead in it. They were, this, is the, this, is, this is the resurrection of unbelievers. Right? I mentioned last time John chapter 5, verse 29, where God's going to raise up those who have done evil to a resurrection of judgment. So we see this here. Now, this poses a question. Why must unbelievers be resurrected? Right? They're already judged. They're already in Hades. They're, they're being tormented already. Their souls are there. Why must they be resurrected? Well, I, I can find two, two reasons. First, unbelievers are resurrected because that's what it means to be human. To be human is to have both flesh and soul. Right? To be human is not just, a, not just to have the spirit flowing away. We're not then fully human. We're fully human when we have both flesh and soul. And so for these unbelievers to be judged as humans, they are to be judged then in the flesh. So they're raised up again as humans created in the image of God. Right? If, you're, if you have put on flesh, you're human, you're created in the image of God, and therefore you're being judged according to God. Second reason, and second reason, again, these are just kind of more theological reasons that I'm thinking through. I'm not, I can't really find much proof text for it, but I believe that unbelievers are resurrected in order to attain a physical body that will be tormented forever. This body will wear away like, like the rest of creation. It will disappear. It can be destroyed. Now, keep in mind, Scripture does tell us believers will be raised up in a glorified body that will be unperishable, holy, sinless, wonderful. But in the same light, I see here 
unbelievers being resurrected. And what happens to them? They get thrown into a lake of fire where they're tormented forever. And I'm almost as if I'm taking this fire literally. They're going to be burning forever in this new physical body. This physical body that's given to him is meant to be judged. That's a... That's a, that's a very stark reality of what's going on here. The reality is that they will be judged. That they will be thrown to a lake of fire. That they will be tormented forever. God, the judge, he knows all, he sees all. In fact, the books here are declaring exactly what each person is doing. This here is indeed a courtroom scene. God is calling each person up. And the books, the evidence, are testifying of their wickedness, of their unbelief, of their doubts. And note here that no one here, no one here is to protect, is to protect what's going on with these unbelievers. The reason why I say this is a courtroom scene, in fact, turn with me to Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. We see Daniel, he was a prophet in the Old Testament. He saw visions of the future. And this is the vision that he saw. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9 to 10. Pretty much exactly what we just read in Revelation. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. Daniel says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and his hair, the hair on his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. These books contain every thought, every word, every action of our entire lives. Everything that we've ever done, everything that each person has ever done, every book written, filled with their lives. This is their life story. And it comes before God and He judges every one of them. Again, note that heaven and earth have fled away. They're gone. And throughout the Old Testament, when God does, when God is calling Israel into a court-like room scene, He's actually calling heaven and earth to be witnesses before them. Right? Isaiah chapter one verse two, He says, "Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth." Meaning, heaven and earth, take hold of what I'm going to accuse Israel of. You are my witnesses. I am now wrong in my accusation. Micah six two is the same. Hear you mountains, then dig me with the Lord, and you and you enduring foundation of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. The word contend here, which is also used in Isaiah chapter one, is talking about a dispute, it's talking about courtroom arguments. Where two sides are being presenting their sides, and there's a judge who's gonna say, This side is right, this side is wrong. The mountain, the heavens and earth were meant to be witnesses of this, but here they're gone. There's no one here to protect these unbelievers. They are on their own. They're standing before God on their own. Meaning, these unbelievers, they cannot blame it on their circumstances. They cannot blame it on their families, their personality. They can't say the government made me do it. They can't blame their teachers. 
They can't bring their friends, institutions. Everything that's written in their book is on them. And they stand before God. They stand before God, all of who they are. God sees everything. Again, in the, in the kind of the theme of uncreation, God in Genesis, He clothed Adam and Eve to cover their sin. Here, in God's uncreation, each person standing naked before the throne. And then we see here in verse 14 that death itself faces its end. It's interesting here. It's interesting here that as the unbelievers are being judged, we see heaven and sky fled away. Then it says death and Hades, which are locations, right? Or Hades, at least we understand it to be a location. Death itself is not a thing. It's just death, right? But yet they, these two things were thrown into the lake of fire. What does that mean? What's going on here? Well, if death and Hades... If they represent a temporary place of death and torment, meaning when we die now, if unbelievers die now and they don't have their faith in Christ, they're going, they're, they experience death and they're now in Hades, which I am defining as a temporal location where the souls are being tormented. Now these two things are now being thrown into a lake of fire. It's almost as if God is saying that this second death, the second death is not like the first. What's going on here is that this judgment, this great white throne judgment is not like any other judgment you experienced before. This judgment here is final. That heaven and earth are done. Humanity has fulfilled their purpose. And hence, death and Hades have also fulfilled their purpose. There is no more need for a temporary place of torment because now we've reached the end of all things. And the end of all things for unbelievers is the lake of fire. This is eternal hell. In, in scripture, there's a word that's used to talk about this place of fire, this place of torment, eternal torment. And it's the word Gehenna. And Gehenna is actually... And, and it's actually talking about a location near Jerusalem. Uh, location is, is the Valley of Ben-Hinnon. Right, that is the Old Testament name of it, right? And what's going on here is that in the Old Testament, the Valley of, of Ben-Hinnon, it was a place where Israel worshipped idols and performed child sacrifices. Right? So this is a place where idolatry was happening, where they were disobeying God. They were in sin. And this is not a good place. In the New Testament, this same place, right, Jerusalem now under Roman, um, under Roman uh, captivity, this valley of Ben-Him and Gehenna, it's a place where the residents of Jerusalem dumped their garbage. It was a landfill. All right? They dumped their garbage there. And so it's a landfill. It was constantly burning because they were burning their trash. So it reeked with filth. And infest it with, I don't know, maggots? Or, I don't know. Use your imagination. And the lake of fire here, this in a sense is like God's Gehenna. It's a place where he dumps his garbage. It's a place where he dumps his filth and all unholy things. 
This is the hell that Jesus constantly warned us about. The reality hell is real. And the reality hell isn't this place where the soul is tormented forever. It's a place where both flesh and soul will be tormented forever. It is the lake of fire. Mark chapter 9 verse 43, Jesus says, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. For it is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell. What is, how does he describe hell? To the unquenchable fire. Matthew 13, 41. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all the causes of sin and all lawbreakers and thrown into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25, 41. He, then he will say to those, this is the, the goat and sheep judgment. And he's talking about those, the goats on his left. The, he will say to those who is left, depart from me, these sinners, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for devil and his angels. You see, regardless of what you think, how you ever interpret the fire, whether it's you know, a physical thing or a symbolic thing, Whatever the place is, hell is not a place of comfort. You're not going in there to find a sauna waiting for you, right? That's not what this heat is talking about. It's a place of total darkness and unending torment. Jude 13 speaks of these people, these false teachers, te heretics, and those who follow them. They're like wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. They are wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Matthew 25:30. This is Matthew 25:30 is the parable of parable of the talents. And remember the unworthy servant in the parable of talents, he was he didn't he wasn't faithful. He wasn't steward of his of, of what, he, what God has given to him, he didn't believe in God. And so what did then the master do with his servant? He says, cast this worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, this is for reals. It's not just good enough that you that you say that you're a believer is not just good enough that you just simply come to church you must live your life under the Lordship of Christ what this means is that all of us all of our lives there is being recorded every single thing God knows exactly what is going on God knows exactly what shows you're watching what thoughts you have, how you feel about this person, even the small white lies you make. God knows your motivations. There is much to be made about this. All of us, all of us will one day be resurrected, unbelievers and believers. And all of us will one day stand before our Creator each one of us to answer for our own actions, for our words, our thoughts, our lives. What does your book say? What does your book say? 
will be contained in the lines, will be written in the margins. God will know all of it. What I what I want to what I want us to see here, what I want to be just to be challenged with here is I can again I, we've been in Revelation for so long, and I, we've been applying it in so many different ways, right? We've been we can talk about the need to evangelize the lost because the Revelation is going to happen. Jesus is going to come back again, and there's no more time left. Jesus is coming back soon. We could talk about remaining faithful through persecution. We did. We talked about endurance. We talked about. Uh, we were talking about making sure we're going now. We're living faithfully to the end, and that's great. That's wonderful. We even talked about how <clears throat> we talked about how the problem of evil, right, and how Revelation is God's answer to that. That evil we see it going throughout earth, injustice, people who are being abused, people who are being hurt. God's answer to all that is found in Revelation. He is going to judge the earth. He's going to judge all people. But in here in this passage, I can say all that things again, but what I want to do is come back to you personally. And I want to ask you, do you know what's written in your life? That when you stand before God, what will He say of you? What will He say of your walk? See, the big idea here is that indeed all creation will face its end and will be judged for either eternal life or eternal death. But note here that there is only one way to avoid the lake of fire. There's only one way, and that's found in verse 15. It says, If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That means the opposite is true. If your name is found in the book of life, you will not be thrown into the lake of fire. The book of life. What is that? In Revelation chapter 13 verse 8 is called the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. This is those whom Jesus died for. This book of life contains all the names of whom Jesus said, I shed my blood for you. And Jesus knows each and every one of your names if you truly believe in him and follow him in fact turn me back to Revelation chapter 3 verse 5 and listen to this promise of Jesus Revelation chapter 3 verse 5 speaking to the church here is one of the main purposes of why Revelation is written so that we can remain faithful we can continue on in Revelation chapter 3 verse 5 it says to the one who conquers he will be clothed thus in white garments and I Jesus will never blot his name out of what the book of life instead what will Jesus do he says here I will confess his name before my father and before his angels see the great white throne judgment reminds us that there will be a courtroom where you will stand trial and your book will be written and all of us will realize just how deep we are in our sins and how much we deserve condemnation. But if your name is in the book of life, you have an advocate. You have an advocate. Jesus, who will speak to the judge and say, that one is mine. You are mine. This, this Christ, this Christ, he died for your sins. 
Have you truly confessed Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you truly confessed of your sins before Him and said, My righteousness is filthy, but let me cling to Christ and His blood and His righteousness. Have you truly submitted yourself to live, to die to yourself and to live for Christ and Christ alone? Well, how do you wake up each day? Do you wake up thinking how you're going to live to honor your Lord and your Savior? Think about where you're at. You know, we're, we're all going through life. We're all trying to, you know, trying to reach our next goal. And that's understandable. In order to live in this world, we have to keep going. We have to, you know, get past our college programs, get that degree, get that job, have, have the finances, support ourselves. Moving on, if you're dating, there's, there's steps to that. You date, you get married, uh, hope, pray, you know, God willing, you start a family, so on. There's steps to life. Yes, we understand that. We kind of walk through it. But are you... What's most important is not whether or not you reach these life goals. What's most important is whether or not you know Christ as your Lord and Savior. And, you, and what that means, what that means if you proclaim Christ as Lord and Savior is that you do indeed die to yourself, pick up your cross, and follow Him daily. Is that, is what, is that how you live your life? That's a challenge given to us. That's a challenge given to the church, especially the early church, when they were experiencing persecution, when they were being pressured by society and the government to renounce their faith. How much, how much are we going through that now? How does the writers of the Bible encourage the early church? I'll end with this. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. And I, I want you to think about this. If you feel like right now, today, you come here and you've been just going to church. You've been just coming Friday nights. You come to Sundays. You've just been doing this church thing. And you just think, you know what? I'm a good person. That's all I need to do. And you're just walking through life. But you're not really, truly worshiping Christ every single day. If this is where you're at now, you're wondering whether or not you're truly a believer, you're answering to yourself, I, I want you to read this, and I want you to be challenged by it. To be challenged by it to, to come to know Jesus again. Jesus, if you have confessed His name before, keep in mind, Jesus did promise He will never blot your name out of the book of life. Which means, Repent. Confess your sins to him and commit your life to him. Let me just read this passage, Hebrews chapter 10, verse, starting in verse 26. There's a challenge to the early church who were being tempted, being tempted to renounce Christianity. And it says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, meaning receiving the gospel, then there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Meaning if you continue living your life, you come here, you hear the gospel, and yet you continue to live your life sinning. You will be living in a fearful expectation of judgment and fire. Verse 28. 
Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So this is talking about the Old Testament law of Moses. If anybody who says, I reject the law, I'm going to do this instead, they're going to die without mercy. That's what's happening in the Old Testament. We now live in a New Testament age, which has grace. But yet, hear this, verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? If you call yourself a Christian, how much worse is your punishment if you never change your life to follow him? To be a Christian is to say Jesus is Lord. Verse 30. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This, these passage, the white throne judgment is sobering. Yes, I want us to come here to Friday nights and enjoy ourselves, to enjoy the fellowship, to enjoy the company of one another it isn't i want i want us to enjoy this but at the same time i want us to also face the reality of what scripture reminds us of that's not about all fun and games here at church but it's about eternity it's about your souls it's about your future it's about where you stand before god how are you walking with them today I pray as we go off into our communion groups, we talk. We don't need, again, communion groups are not a place where you're supposed to share about sins and be accountable to one another as your small groups. But I do pray that we can go there and we can share about challenges that we face in our daily walks. And I pray that we can encourage one another to continue to go through life faithfully. And again, the reminder, the promise here is that God, that Jesus says, He will never block your name. Go back to Him. He, no matter how far you may have fallen away from the path, Jesus will still welcome you with open arms. That is grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that we can gather here together and, and read your word. And yes, Lord, your word indeed is sobering. Your word reminds us, Lord, just that you take our lives seriously, that sin matters to you, and that, Lord, you will not accept any sin into your presence. Lord, you are holy, and you, Lord, are vengeful. You, Lord, will judge your people. But God, we thank you because not only are you judged, but you are also our redeemer. For you sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins as our substitute. Lord, what a wonderful grace. What a wonderful illustration of love. God, you sacrificed your son so that we can be saved. So that we won't enter the lake of fire. Instead, we will enter into your kingdom 
Lord, what a wonderful, what a wonderful gift you have given to us. Lord, may we be challenged, challenged by this book, by this message, by this passage, challenging our lives to live for you and you alone. Because Lord, it matters. All that we do every single day matters to you. So Lord, then, let us live then, not for ourselves, not for this world that will pass away. Lord, I pray your spirit will move us to live for you and your eternal kingdom. Thank you, Lord, for everything. I pray all this in your name. Amen.